Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, podcast friends, we got a fun and valuable show for you today. All you small business and startup folks, it might just save you 50 grand or more. Our guest is co-founder and CEO of Main Street, a startup making it easy for businesses to access incentive programs. In today's episode, we're talking about saving meaningful money. We kick off the conversation with Main Street's launch of an incentive campaign that would have paid you 10 grand to leave the Bay Area. As a result, they received an influx of local and state governments reaching out to inform them of their own incentive programs. This caused Main Street to shift the product vision to serve the small businesses and startup community as a government relations and finance team, making it easier to gain access to the same tools and incentive programs being used by sophisticated corporate finance groups. Better yet, the average company is saving around 50 grand per year. We dive into the user experience of integrating Main Street into HR platforms and even get into some of the tax credits out there, some of the qualifications to access them, and the success-based business model the team has implemented. If you are a small business owner, do not miss this episode. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Main Street's Doug Ludlow. Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Really happy to be here. Where in Corona quarantine are you? I am hunkering down with a family in San Jose, California. There are definitely worse places to be stuck. I'm trying to relate more to my millennial listeners. So I'm currently podcasting from my mom's basement. Just kidding, millennials. I know you guys all have your own room. That's Gen Z. We road tripped across Utah. We hit up Moab, Buckskin Gulch, which was been on my bucket list for a long time, Slot Canyon. We did Monument Valley, Moab, and even just survived a three-day horse pack trip with my three-year-old son. So now we're in Colorado trying to cool off a bit. But you were formerly nearby me in Los Angeles. You were a Bruin. Is that right? That's right. Class of 2005, lived in LA for 11 years. Awesome. Well, we're right down in Manhattan Beach, El Segundo. And we're going to get to Main Street in a minute, but you've been kind of a multiple founder, entrepreneur over the past decade. We'd love to hear just kind of a quick timeline of some of those stories and companies before we lead into what you're doing now. So this is my third venture-backed company. My first company was a company called Hipster. And this was a company actually started in LA, not too far away from where you are now. It was an early Instagram competitor. It was a location-based photo sharing service. You go and tag where you are. One of those early like local social products. It got to a few million downloads. I mean, at this point, if you're not Instagram, Instagram has billions of users. So a few million didn't really matter. But we were acquired by AOL back in 2012, which seems like a lifetime ago. And the goal was to integrate this photo sharing service into their local product at the time, Patch, which I don't know if it exists within AOL. I know AOL doesn't really exist anymore. And then left to start a new company after spending about a year and a half at AOL. It was a great experience. We really liked it there. 
My second company was called Happy Home. And Happy Home was, we call it your personal home manager. The idea was like, if you needed help with a plumber, an electrician, a home renovation, we'd have a service that would take you from an end-to-end experience, from discovery to billing, et cetera. Raise some money from guys like Chris Saka at Lowercase, David Tish, Fox Group, a lot of really good seed funds. The company wasn't ultimately successful in the end. I've had a success, I've had a failure. I guess you can say we were acqui-hired though by Google to help go and build their home services ad unit. So now like when you go to use Google for a plumber and electrician, you get to use the product I built, which is kind of cool. If you have a legacy at Google, being the plumber guy is not a bad legacy to have. Did you stay and become a part of the Googleplex for a while? I did. I was there for three and a half years, which was a lot longer than I actually intended to spend. I thought I'd be there for a year, head on out, build the product we done. But Google had some really fantastic, kind, smart people. Like it really did. I was always impressed with every Googler I met. And Google operated at a scale that was just staggering. It goes slow, to be clear. Like Again, you have this giant, almost trillion dollar ship. They don't want to mess it up. But the depth of talent there was pretty great. After I helped build the home services ad unit product, I took on a role, a different role. It was a chief of staff for Google's small and medium business ad unit, as well as the Next Billion User ad unit. And Next Billion Users are for India, Indonesia, Latin America, products there. Overall, $17 billion ad unit, ad portfolio. And it was a real fantastic, it's like a master's class in small businesses, understanding how do you serve 16 million small businesses? What are their needs? What are their concerns? What are the opportunities? And really, really glad I had that experience within Google. It's actually shaped a lot of what I've done since. I have a funny story. Had given a talk at Google. It's got to be five, six years ago now. They have like an investment book club. And in the talk, because they streamed it, I guess, to the rest of the campus or remote as well. You can find it on YouTube. I said, if you're listening or watching, I'm happy to send you a free book. It's still six years later, we'll get people from all over the world that'll email me and say, I'm ready to take you up on that book offer. And I'm like, there should be some sort of expiration on this. I should have said six months, 12 months or something, but I still honor it. But good news, most of ours are free to download now anyway. Nice. That's awesome. It's a cool place. There's a lot of great people there. I saw the autonomous car driving around. I remember when I went there, great cafeteria, great spot. Okay, so... What was the on-ramp for coming up with your current idea? Was it bouncing around your head while you were at Google? Did you leave Google, do a sabbatical? What was sort of the next steps? While at Google, I met two guys that I really got along with really well. They're my two current co-founders, Dan Lindquist, who was a PM on the team, and Daniel Griffin, who was a team lead engineer. We got along really well. We barbecued a lot. Two years in a row, we won the Santa Cruz Boardwalk Chili Cook-Off together. Now, if you cook 60 gallons of chili with someone on the beach, you know, startups can be no problem. So we knew we wanted to do something. So over about six months worth of free Google coffee, we had discussions about what are we interested in? What are we motivated by? And it turns out we had a shared interest in, or more like concern for what we saw was, in our opinion, a growing inequality of opportunity and wealth and jobs that was beginning to rise between wealthy areas like San Francisco and New York. And really like the rest of the country, like suburban, rural communities, this opportunities gap. So this was a personal problem for me in my life. I grew up in a small, relatively mid-sized city in California called Modesto, kind of the middle of the state. And really over the last 40 years, the economy has slowly just been chipped away in my hometown. Where if you're a smart kid in high school, you generally leave to get a good job. It's really hard to start a small business there. It's almost impossible to start like a technology company because the sport's not there. And the three of us at Google at the time, we said we wanted to leave Google to start a company whose mission was, and actually still is our current mission, to help create jobs and opportunity for underserved communities and underrepresented individuals. We knew we wanted to do that. We left in September of last year. We incorporated in October. But originally, and this is where the story takes a bit of a detour, our product vision was very different at the time. What we wanted to do when we left Google with this mission, we wanted to build what we were calling a network of remote work hubs to where... You had these great Google engineers who had these great Google jobs, good Google salaries, but they had to live and work in Mountain View. And no one wants to live and work in Mountain View if you can work. <laughs> You'd rather take your great job and live on the North Shore of Hawaii or in Boulder, Colorado, or in your hometown. So we set out to build this network of remote work hubs. And to kind of kick off, see if there's people had an interest in this product, we launched in November what was a kind of incentive to kind of tongue-in-cheek promotional campaign. It was 
we'll pay you $10,000 to leave the Bay Area campaign. This went crazy viral. Thousands and thousands of applicants, international news media attention. What was interesting is the minute we launched this $10,000 incentive plan, literally dozens of cities and states and counties all around the country reached out to us and let us know that they already had an incentive plan and wanted to know if we could share it with the growing community that was interested in ours. And for example, the state of Arizona reached out and let us know they had a $9,000 per new job hiring incentive bonus. The city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, who has this great program called the Tulsa Remote Program, this is $10,000 for moving your remote job to Tulsa. I was kind of stunned. As I mentioned earlier, this was my third company, and yet it was the first I'd ever heard of this world of government tax credits and job creation incentives. So we decided to dig deeper and learn more about this. And it turns out that this is an enormous market, like $300 billion are spent worldwide each year or allocated for basically hiring credits and tax credits based on trying to promote the hiring of certain people, the certain type of economic activity. It's $150 billion a year alone in the United States, but it's almost entirely taken by the biggest companies, the Boeings, the Walmarts, the Amazons, who have sophisticated government relations teams, sophisticated finance teams who take advantage of these credits, sometimes negotiate these credits and save their companies literally billions of dollars per year. So we decided this was like our aha moment, our light bulb moment. We said like, this is what Main Street should be. Main Street should be the mini government relations team, the mini finance team for the small business, for the startup. Let's make it a lot easier for these Main Street businesses to get the kind of the financial tools and tricks that Wall Street businesses get, whether it's tax credits, whether it's unique financial instruments like invoice factoring, whether there's opportunities on things you can do. The world is kind of endless when you start thinking, what are all the things that large companies take for granted because of their scale? The tax credits being one of the first and biggest parts of that. How can you miniaturize them, make it easily accessible to the startup? And once we made that pivot, that change, when it heads down, the demand was just through the roof. And we can talk about that if you like. But this was my long-winded way of saying, this was not what we wanted to do when we left Google. This came by launching a product that was interesting. I think will eventually be successful. I think someone will build a network of remote work hubs, like a WeWork for remote in the suburbs, which would be a cool idea. Not today, of course, but give it a year or two. But through that experimentation, through the iteration, and kind of by listening to what the market was saying, found this current iteration of the product that has just really taken off. I'm really glad we did. So there's so much to unpack in that. I mean, I was thinking as you were speaking about Half of my family comes from sort of farmland in Kansas and Nebraska and Modesto, I think in that general area is a farm community too. And thinking about go drive through those towns now, and so many are just sort of ghost towns would be a strong word, but you can t- they've been hollowed out by, like you mentioned, the young people moving to cities or transitioning or whatnot, but touching obviously on a lot of the societal stressors of the income and opportunity gap and so many things going on there. We talk a bit about that on the podcast. And then where you are, what's led you to kind of what you guys are doing. Why don't you kind of walk us through, I mean, my gosh, what a crazy time to start a company and then be introduced directly into 2020. But again, this isn't your first rodeo. So walk me through kind of then how you guys started to build the product and what that actually looks like. And how different that was. So where are we in the timeline now? Is this like first quarter 2020? That's absolutely right. We launched this, our first incentive program that $10,000 leave the Bay Area in mid-November. It was already clear to us by beginning of January that not only was the idea of these incentives and credits potentially a much bigger, more scalable market, we were also actually very concerned about what we started to see. And this is true in China with COVID, recognizing that If this happens here, if things get shut down, there's no world in which people are going to be moving right now. Remote work will be big, but so we recognize we need to make this change and we need to do it fast. So in February, we started to build this product. We started to build, and the way the product works today, a good analogy to use is Honey for business. I don't know if you know Honey, the app sits in your Chrome browser and it helps you save money every time you shop. Main Street actually works in a very similar way, but a founder or small business owner will add Main Street and connect it to their HR you know, portal, their Gusto or their JustWorks. And the way it works is we, our system will identify based on the signals embedded within your payroll, whether it's salary or job type or location, et cetera, what are the credits you're likely eligible for? Well, then our system will make application for these order magnitude easier. 
So like rather than spending hours on this on your own or with your accountant, it's about 15 minutes worth of work on the part of the founder. And then we handle ongoing maintenance and compliance to where some of these credits require follow-up, quarterly reporting. The nice thing about being software-based is it's not something we have to do. It's easy for us to do. It couldn't be easier to use in the state it is today. You simply add it to your payroll and you start saving money. The average company has been saving around $50,000 a year right now, which is pretty great. Focus largely on a few different types of credits. The biggest credits being some federal credits. One are the research and development tax credit, which again, very appropriate for startups. The way to sum up the R&D credit is everything you spend on an engineer, for example, you're eligible for almost 10% of that back in tax credits. It's the way the government tries to incentivize the hiring of engineers, of product people, and the development of research and development in the United States. Another credit that's proven popular, and I think will about to explode nationwide, is the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, which is actually a subset of 12 different credits that the government tries to use to incentivize the hiring of people from, let's say, a rural environment, an enterprise zone, veterans, or someone who's been unemployed. And that's about to be a 30 to 40 million Americans are about to be unemployed. So we expect this tax credit to really start to help incentivize the rehiring of these people to really put money in the pockets of small business starting in 2021. Can you dig a little deeper on that? What are the qualifications of that? Because I imagine we have a ton of small business owners, founders listening to this. And I'm sure much like ourselves at Cambria, we pretty much don't do any of these things, either because we're unaware or just focused on other things or too small. Like many founders, you just there's only so many hours in the day. But if it's money being left on the table, it seems foolish not to pursue some of these opportunities. So could you explain a little more what that means on sort of the you said the biggest muscle mover, R&D tax credit. I'm guessing that applies a little more to tech or research-based organizations. And then what was the next one? Could you dive a little? So the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, WOTC for short, W-O-T-C. It was started during the Clinton administration, I believe in 95 or 96. And over the last 25 years, the program has grown to add different categories of people who the government's trying to incentivize. And so, for example, during the Bush administration, Veterans and wounded veterans were added to the list of people you get a tax credit for. The credits range anywhere on the low end, really from $2,400 up to $9,600, and eligible for a few years, actually, depending on, again, there's 12 different categories. They are all slightly different, but it's a pretty simple process. Whether or not a company uses Main Street or not, and so actually I'll talk about in general before we talk about how we do it, it's very simple. You ask your employee to fill out a quick form if they meet a certain category or if they're a veteran. 10 to 15% of the country lives in either a rural zone or an enterprise zone. And then the government will then choose to accept or deny the request. Use about 50% nationwide of requests are approved. That number goes up the more you're actually sending qualified people their way. But then you get a, a credit you're able to use against your taxes, whether it's your corporate income tax, which if you're a C-Corp, you have, or if you're an LLC, sole proprietorship or partnership, that can flow through in many ways. And you can talk to your accountant about this to your personal income tax and reduce your liability depending on your structure. It's incredibly valuable. The IRS estimates that 95% of people who would be qualified for the work opportunity tax credit, the companies aren't filling out these forms. And so there's an enormous opportunity for businesses to simply fill out a form and send it and get, in some cases, up to $10,000 worth of tax credit back. And that's going to be incredibly important over the next 24 months as small businesses are really getting hammered now and as they start to rebuild. For the listeners, go check out the Work Opportunity Tax Credit. Just Google it, W-O-T-C. You'll get an IRS page to overview the different types of categories. And again, the biggest being people who are on SNAP, basically food assistance programs, veterans, people living in enterprise zones, people living in rural zones, people who've been unemployed for six months, people who are felons. There's a few other categories beyond that, but those are the biggest. But again, you're already hiring these people without knowing that they fall in these categories. And it's designed to help people who could really use a job. All right. So we got R&D, work opportunity. Are there any others that are in the current batch? I imagine over time, you guys are going to end up adding all sorts of stuff, but are there any other main ones that people should be thinking about? Those are the major federal credits that are available. There are some COVID-related and CARES Act-related credits, which many businesses have hopefully already taken advantage of. Obviously, there was the PPP. People should pay close attention because there's word of another PPP-style program that will be released since the country's still in the middle of this COVID crisis. There's the employee retention tax credit, which is another federal level credit. And that is if your business has been affected by COVID, but you did not take the PPP, you're actually eligible for $5,000 in 
and credit per employee. So it's incredibly valuable for some companies. It's a payroll tax credit, so it reduces your liability immediately. And those are some of the federal things. Over the next year, we're going to be adding, and there's 2,000 different programs nationwide. It's kind of crazy how many incentive programs there are. We'll be adding in statewide credits, and some of these are statewide R&D credits. Some of them are actually education and training credits. Most companies don't know that if you're upskilling your workforce, for example, training them in IT or giving them advancement in any number of career areas, you're eligible for up to 50% of your expenses reimbursed by the state. And 42 different states have a program like this. And anywhere from California's on the lower end at $2,400, New York's on the higher end at five to $6,000. So those are the things Main Street will start to add in. Eventually, we'd like to do all the local programs. The city of Sacramento has incentive programs for hiring people, $10,000 per person. State of Vermont has a remote hiring program. And more and more, and we talk about this if you like, more and more will cities and states start to compete for remote jobs. That's been a trend we saw over the last two years. But given that COVID has made, like Twitter, for example, they can go 100% remote. Facebook's moving in that direction. Now cities and states will be able to compete for these jobs. And you're about to see this market explode on the local level. We hope to be there to, to help people connect. It's fascinating. I was just reminded of, and maybe as you guys wrote about this, maybe as someone else, but there was a article on some of these incentives and some were personal and some were business related, but there's like a town in Iowa that'll straight up give you some land. It might even be like a house. There's just like give you a plot of land. It's like 200 years ago in the wild west in the US, but it's 2020. These communities are really getting ready to compete for these jobs. I mean, imagine how much land you can get in the middle of Idaho. For what you'd pay for a tiny apartment, for example, in San Jose or San Francisco, where I live, you can buy a beautiful plot of land. And if your job is now remote, why not? Why not take the family and live on a farm and still have your great remote job for the cost of a small apartment in the city? COVID has been terrible on many, many, many levels. What I hope this brings, though, in the long term is kind of that vision that we started the company on, like spreading out opportunity across the country. If you can take your great job and work, Somewhere else, why wouldn't you? And, and cities and states will start to compete to get you to do that. There's so many of these things. And many, 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 many years ago, being an investment and finance guy, we used to look into the U.S. Virgin Islands incentives, which got a little more challenging over the years. But then Puerto Rico has a ton of incentives as well. Walk me through practically how this works. So let's say I'm a company. I got 10 employees. We don't do any of this stuff. We just focus on our blocking and tackling. I go to your website. What's next? How does this process work? It's pretty easy. I'll tell you how the product works today, and then I'll, we can talk about where it's going. You'll set up a quick appointment with an onboarding specialist who will talk you through what to expect because, again, tax credits and incentives are new to people. So having a little bit of expertise helps. You'll then receive instructions. How do you add Main Street Connected to your HR platform? If you use Gusto, if you use QuickBooks Payroll, if you use Trinet, each of these programs are slightly different. And once you connect, then you just sit back and you wait. And if you're a technology company, within a few days, you'll get back a notice saying, hey, here's instructions for, here's how much we think you're going to save for the research and development payroll tax credit. Take a look at this, sign here and be done. It's very, very easy. If it's a hiring credit, like one of the work opportunity tax credits, when you add some to your payroll, our system's connected and we notice. And if we think that person's eligible, we'll shoot off an application for you. And again, all you have to sit back and you'll be asked, do you want to take advantage of this? You press yes and you're done. So it's very, very easy. It's designed to be as hands-free as possible. And so is the company actually making the applications? Do you guys do it? Is it sort of you just kind of hold their hands through it or what? So it depends on what type of credit, because in the case of a, let's say the research and development credit, that's actually something that gets filed with, there is no application. It's actually like a form you file with your taxes. So we're connected to your accountant, we finish the, it's the form 6765, if anyone cares about the specifics, and we give those to your accountant and they file alongside your taxes. And then you're able to start taking credit every time you run payroll. So we'll help you with that. For the WOTC application, that is something that we are able to send out on your behalf. Again, it's not Main Street making the application. You are just pressing go and we send it for you. Think about like how TurboTax works with Intuit. It's not Intuit filing your taxes for you. It's them assisting you to do so. If you get approved, and again, the approved form will send along to your accountant. And when you file your taxes, you get the credit against your taxes. To your point about founders and small business owners, we're all really busy. The last thing in the world we want to do is think about, for example, if someone's starting a restaurant, they're thinking about the recipes and how do you hire enough staff? 
the last thing they're thinking about is government incentives. Even if it could net them tens of thousands of dollars, we want to take as much of that headache off as possible. And I think that's the perfect description is headache, because if anyone's been to the DMV or dealt with the government in any capacity, it can be mind-numbingly painful. So what's the business model? Do you guys charge a monthly fee? Is it something where it's success-based? How does it kind of flow through to you guys? So it is a success-based model. So for example, if we identify a credit for you and then you're actually able to take advantage of that credit, then we charge a fee. And the fee is generally 15 to 20%. And we only get paid when you get paid. So it's one thing to identify that, hey, you're eligible for this, but we won't charge you until you're actually receiving benefit. One of the things we're evolving with our business model and actually launching this week. So by the time people hear this, it'll have been out for a few weeks, a program to where you can actually receive it. We will advance you the money for credit you'll receive down the line. So if you know in July, I hire someone, I might not be able to take that credit till next April after I file my taxes. Or if I'm paying an engineer, researching something, I'm generating R&D credit now, but I won't be able to receive that for nine months. We're able to actually give you the credit now in a form of an advance that we get repaid when the government writes you that check back. Again, it's the same model, we get paid when you get paid, but this way you'll basically get paid instantly, which is kind of cool. It's such an obvious business model. It's one that is so obvious that it's odd that no one has kind of done this exact approach. But like you mentioned, because of all the guts and challenges of connections, it's not a trivial project that I imagine is going to be a continual effort to add all these programs in the future and optimize them. So you mentioned kind of how it works now and maybe how it'll work six months or a year from now. What does sort of the future product roadmap look like? Because I imagine once you have dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of these companies plugging in, you start to have some opportunities and ideas that may be able to capitalize on that you don't have maybe today. Any general comments, thoughts? Oh yeah, absolutely. If you think about a small business and how business is valued and how business is financed, it's actually very difficult for a traditional bank or a lender or a credit card company to actually understand how's this company doing? Because like if you look at the balance sheet of even a very successful retail store or restaurant, they generally have very little cash on hand, even if it's a very successful restaurant or very successful retail store. What we'd like to be able to do with Main Street is utilize the insights we have into this business. So for example, if a restaurant has hired 20 people in a year, and that's a pretty standard restaurant, and it turns out that half of them are eligible for a $5,000 tax credit, well, gosh, we know that this restaurant is going to be receiving $50,000 worth of credit next year. We can extend all sorts of financial assistance to that business, whether it's in the form of loans, whether it's form of like just approving for credit cards or et cetera. So we'd like to use government credits and incentives as a way that will help us get more insight into the, the small business and be able to help them in ways that bigger companies get. So if we can be the heart of the small, we may, now we're getting into the realm of brainstorming. I don't want to give away anything, but like, we can launch the Main Street credit card. That could be in the pocket of every single small business owner that helps get you savings from tax credits, helps get you savings from incentives, but then also adjusts your limit based off what we know. So we can be going back to our core mission. We want to help create jobs and opportunity, underserved communities, and underrepresented individuals. The small business owner is out there on their own. And it's very hard. The, the world of finance can be an opaque, difficult to navigate world. And so if we can make that just a little bit easier, kind of a set it and forget it and open doors to easier financing, better financial tools, uh, kind of be the heart of that small business's financial center, that would be our goal. How do we help tens of, and actually just to build on a little further, small businesses are being hammered right now and many will close over the next 18 months. It's going to be terrible. It's going to happen. We'd like to be there as America and the world starts to rebuild and give tools for these companies, millions of companies that are starting to have access to capital and financing the way they wouldn't have had before and really be there to help usher in the next wave of small business for the next decade. It'll be fun to watch you guys as this entire platform gets built and you have some of these insights, a lot of the almost traditional banking ideas. You've seen a lot of the credit cards that are focused on startups and early stage companies develop a whole ecosystem of benefits that probably outweigh the cost where they can say, hey, here's the 20 things that you can get that companies may offer as benefits. But I wonder at some point if you guys almost can become 
a proactive, where it's like a flywheel where you're actually talking and having discussions with various municipalities and states and governments about programs and ideas. And once you have this whole base of companies to work with. No, that's exactly right. Suddenly, if we have thousands of technology companies, suddenly it's very easy for us to talk to a city saying, hey, this is the type of program you should launch. You will attract talent here. We've talked to dozens of economic development boards around the country, and they're eager for a solution like that. They don't know exactly. They know they have to compete for these jobs, but the traditional model of economic development doesn't work. It's the build the factory, spend $200 million, hopefully the factory won't ever leave. That's very much a 20th century form of economic development. So here, if they can use mainstreaming and leveraging the thousands of small businesses, thousands of startups that will be part of the platform, or the hundreds that are on the platform today, they'll be able to have much better insight into where their tax dollars are going because they'll see like, actually this company X hired this person and we provided a $5,000 incentive and we know they're living here. It's a level of insight and accountability they have with their tax dollars and tax credits they've never had before. So they're eager for that as well. It's funny because you mentioned TurboTax earlier and I was actually ranting on Twitter because I still do my own taxes. Don't ask why, (laughs) but it takes me usually about four days and I don't even have traditionally that complicated of taxes. And I'm a finance professional. I've been in the finance industry for essentially 20 years and it's still that complicated. But even then I was like, how is there not automated service to where, and this is personal, but essentially it's what you guys are doing where I could just put my last five years of tax returns and it spit out, hey, idiot, you've done these five things wrong. You could have claimed these home office expenses or whatever they may be which I imagine may be one that, by the way, may start to pop up more in this sort of remote world with you guys too. But is there ever an expansion idea that would involve individuals too, where you say, hey, look, you should be taking advantage of XYZ, or is that just too far down the road? No, I mean, we certainly discussed the idea because individuals need help. One of the benefits, I actually don't think we'll be going down that anytime in the near future. And it's for a variety of reasons. The interesting thing with small businesses and startups is if we can nail even a handful of programs, it'll be incredibly valuable for millions of businesses. Individuals, there's so many complicating factors. So many like, are you married, filing jointly, partnership? What's your losses for years? It is far more complicated. Someone will eventually develop a fantastic AI-driven accountant that does exactly what you're talking about. And that person will develop a trillion dollar business. I have no doubt about that. In the meantime, though, I think our focus will be on small businesses and startups only because it is a slightly simpler, even though it's, it's not simple, it's a lot of work, but it's simpler than doing an individual level. And from a business perspective, when we're talking about helping small business with tens of not hundreds of thousands of dollars, we can invest the resources because we know we'll get a return helping these guys that may not be there for the individual. It's a great idea. Someone will do it. It's probably not going to be us. I mean, the opportunity is big enough is kind of focusing on the business side, but you guys have only been at this for a few months on this specific iteration. And you mentioned already the average savings is like 50 grand. Have you had any companies that have gotten into six figures, saved over a hundred grand yet? We've had companies save 250,000. Wow, that's awesome. Even at the bigger companies, I wonder where you start to hit your head on the ceiling of, they have someone doing this in-house. Is it like 50, 100, 500 employees? Is it totally dependent just on kind of their time in business? What do you think is kind of the upper reaches on where this might already be captured in-house? For the product as it stands today, our target market is generally a startup from a pre-seed level to series B or series C. And that's generally, if you have a CFO, that CFO is probably your college roommate. They're not a professional CFO. You have not yet really invested to digging into every little detail about your finances. Your focus is actually on building the business. As a company grows and matures, that does start to change. So we think that our product today is useless for Google or useless to Amazon. What we think will be interesting though, is we develop this network of incentive programs around the country, around the world. We're talking thousands of different programs across hundreds, if not thousands of different locations. That's actually a network that Google would actually benefit from. Google's not going to maintain active 2,000 different programs. They'll utilize us. Twitter will utilize us. If we can manage to do that, we'll have created this giant network that's very difficult to disrupt, provides a lot of help, and provides value to everyone from that entrepreneur just starting on day one 
all the way to some of these trillion dollar companies. That would be a really valuable end goal. But then we become at that part, kind of a vital part of the world's economic development landscape, which is not a bad way to spend your time. I mean, and even if you are a company, and I'm smiling at this, that's doing 10 or 100 million in revenue, what's the downside? It's like you're getting a free audit. It's like, hey, sure, I'll plug in if you can find us some savings that Joe Smith, the accountant, has not found in-house. Why would you not do it? It would be such a fun case study. Just be like, we plugged into whomever it is that's some massive company and still found all these opportunities. That's a fun idea. So listeners, email in and let me know how this all works out. Let me know how much you save. You owe me a beer if you save anything. You hinted briefly at actually global. Is that something you guys look at beyond our shores? I remember some countries like Chile used to have a big incentive program. Is that something you guys look at too? Yeah, we've absolutely talked about that. Again, just when we're talking about business focus, we're less than a year old. The product's only been in the market for four months. So it's not something we could do today. But if you look at the economic development landscape of the credit world, about half of it is centered in the United States. The other half is found in the EU and Canada. India actually has a pretty robust incentives program. We will eventually get there. Again, this is an enormous market. and It will actually only continue to grow as the same competitive forces that are going to drive American cities to compete against each other for jobs. You will see at a global scale, countries competing for jobs like they did for the Amazon HQ2 headquarters search. So I see a world in which we can compete there and we can help the entrepreneur and small business owner. That is so far ahead of us that we'll have to wait to see where we can get to. But either we'll be the company that does it, or there'll be another person company who does it. Maybe it's actually a company that is focused specifically on the Canadian market, someone who's specifically focused on the EU market. They are different enough programs to where, and there's different enough payroll platforms that you might have localized versions that we either partner with or eventually acquire. But we'll get to the global bridge when we have a little more of a presence in the United States. It's too early for a beer, so we'll say coffee brainstorm here, but... Let's say you get to put on your government policy hat and your state governor or a local mayor, what have you, senator. Are there any policy ideas that you think are particularly insightful that seem to work really well? You've seen a lot of things, Cory Booker's and others, Opportunity Zones, some other ideas that have got to bat it around, or any that people have not mentioned that are really interesting. Is there anything that you think in particular, going back to the beginning of the conversation about this wealth and inequality opportunity sets, any ones you think are really wonderful or new ones that you think no one's even thought of yet? Let's talk about opportunity zones for a moment. Opportunity zones started off two and a half years ago, right? With Cory Booker, one of the co-authors of the legislation. It is this close to being a great program. The amazing thing that opportunity zones do They let investors roll over. You probably know this and your listeners may know. If you have a capital gain and you invest it into a qualified opportunity zone fund, not only will you get, if you hold this for six, seven years, 15% reduction in the capital gain you owe, no matter how large this grows, you owe no capital gains on top of that. So it's limitless growth. It's an extraordinary program, or it could be an extraordinary program. One of the challenges with this is it was designed initially for real estate, and the, the IRS is, and Treasury has released a few clarifications and guidelines to point this towards a businesses and opportunity zones. The challenge, though, there still exists a gap between the massive benefits that wealthy investors get and the small businesses or even startups that would benefit from this capital. There really is no benefit, if you're a small business, to being in an opportunity zone. None at all. And so I would love it. And actually, Main Street is working on this problem right now. So I have a dog in this hunt. How do we find a bridge to connect the truly great incentives that wealthy investors get and make sure that small businesses and startups actually benefit from those those programs? Right now, Opportunity Zones have a reputation for being kind of a loophole for billionaire investors, which, hey, I have no problem if billionaire investors make money at all. I'd just like to see if we can make that benefit flow to small businesses more. So that's, that's something I hope to see Congress revisit and tighten that up again. I think you'd see an explosion of benefits and startups. Like for example, the R&D payroll tax credit is helping startups hire additional people. It's actually achieving the goals they're looking to do. If a startup could get a benefit from being in an opportunity zone and save 10 to 20% of their costs, 
that would do extraordinary things for underserved areas within the country. So it's my long-winded way of saying, I love Opportunity Zones. I think they're this close to being a great program, but until some revisions happen, there'll still be those loopholes for billionaire investors. I think it's pretty accurate. I think it was framed as the companies would be more attractive to the investors. But if you actually had a benefit for the companies, that would kind of link the whole thing from formation to investor. What would it look like? Would it be some sort of tax rebate? Would it be some sort of discounted tax rates? Like, What would the best proposal be, do you think? Well, so there's a couple of different things. Payroll tax are the things that startups and small businesses benefit the most from. Payroll tax relief, it's why you saw some of the COVID. The employee retention tax credit, for example, is a payroll tax because that's most startups and small businesses either operate at a net operating loss or have very little profit to offset as it is. So if I can go and if I base my startup here and not have to pay payroll tax, we're going to massive payroll tax reduction. That would actually be a substantial benefit. This is like a 10% increase in every dollar I spend. Things of that nature that would be useful. We're experimenting in the company right now is can we find a way to link essentially the 15% credit that investors get? Can we pass some of that along to companies that either exist in opportunity zones or even outside of them? So can you come up with clever financial instruments that essentially allow the wealthy investor to share some of their credit in the form of discounts, in the form of whether it's reduced payroll, whether it's rebates on expenditures to help align those incentives. There's a lot of different ways this can go, but for a startup or small business, cash in hand or cash in hand equivalents is what's needed, not a 10-year time horizon. 10 years is an eternity for a startup. You've either been out of business for nine years or you're a billionaire, it doesn't matter anymore. This reminds me a lot. One of the reasons I was so attracted to what you guys are doing is that we've written about over the years, and this is on a personal level, but actually it's businesses too, with the unclaimed assets that are sitting at state coffers and it's in the billions. And we've found every year around tax time, which is weird because now tax time is kind of right now. We tell our followers, say, go to unclaimed.org, type in your name, type in your family's name. If you want to be creepy, you can type in all your relatives or friends or neighbors too. And people have tons of unclaimed assets. And we found over a million bucks for our listeners so far. I think the largest single was 80 grand. We had an investment advisor do it for all of his clients and found like 250 grand. People usually think it's a scam, but it's a lot of unpaid, whether it's dividends that are lost or utility bills you overpaid or insurance. Some of the states liquidate it, some of them let it compound, some even let you download some of that. And so that's been an annual thing we've done for probably a decade. So listeners, if you find anything, shoot me an email, let me know what you find particularly if it's over 10 bucks, but you're doing a much more professional version of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's a similar thing. It's like there's trillions of dollars in unclaimed value. How do you get that in the hands of the small business rather than let it just sit there or rather like let a tax credit, if you don't utilize them, they disappear. Many of them you can't claim. What a shame that is. What else is on your brain these days? I mean, I'm sure the 99.9% of your time is spent thinking about the business, is there anything else you're excited about as you look out to the horizon of this early decade in six months in, in the 2020s? Anything else you guys are thinking about related to your company or anything else? The last six months, and I mean, you and anyone listening knows just how insane the last six months have been. I did not set out to start a remote only company, but that's what we are now. We have people scattered and we will be hiring really anywhere. And so one of the things I'm concerned about as a founder is I'm fully expecting our company to be in a phase of hyper growth and that every founder should want to be in that position. And I think we'll be there. We're now at 11 people. How do you scale to 50 people? How do you scale to 500 people and do that all in a remote setting? I have no experience doing that. And most people have no experience doing that. So trying to rewrite some of these rules for how do you do that? It's something our company is actually thinking about quite a bit. Most companies who before this era that were remote only, they hired people specifically who wanted to be remote. Automatic is a great example of that. Zapier is a great example of that. They filtered for people who want to be great remote workers or want to be working in a location other than San Francisco. Well, now when every employee in a tech company is going to be a remote employee for a while, not everyone is a perfect fit for that. And yet at least 50% of the talent that's looking for a great job is going to now have to be remote. So how do you support that? How do you build an infrastructure? How do you build a company culture that supports that? That's going to be a real challenge. 
that is a very big top of mind question and concern for us. I generally in life am an absurd optimist. You kind of have to be to be a repeat founder. You have to believe that things are going to go right. But when it comes to like planning for the next 24 months, I'm taking a very pessimistic viewpoint saying that I think we will be working from home. In the room I'm in right now, this will be my office as we go and raise our series A, series B, series C. And how do you build a company that can succeed and scale? That is something that keeps me up at night. You can nail the product, but if the company's not there, there's some real challenges. When you find the answers, write a blog post, send it over because I'll read it. We struggle with the same issues. One of the things I think a lot about is, like many people, is do you need an office at all anymore? And what does that look like? It'll be interesting to see. We asked most of the people on the podcast, and you're a, you're a founder and entrepreneur, but I imagine an investor too, that are investing focus. What's been your most memorable investment? Is there anything that comes to mind? It could be good. It could be bad. It could be anything in between, anything seared into your brain. I can tell you the biggest investment I lost. I had an opportunity to invest in a fund that ended up being one of Uber's very first institutional checks. But at the time, my wife and I were expecting our first child. So this was 12 years ago and it was $10,000, but we were like, yeah, let's save this $10,000 for baby stuff. I don't want to say how much that $10,000 would be worth now. That is my greatest investment regret. Well, that would have been one hell of a 529 plan. You say, look, we're going to put in 10, but we'll put it in our child's college account. You could probably fund just about every student in Modesto with that. <laughs> As a repeat entrepreneur, I have a lot of friends who run small early stage companies. And there's a wide variety of them. I'm a big fan of supporting my friends. I'm fortunate enough to be friends with a lot of very creative entrepreneurs. So getting into an insight into their world and the opportunities they've seen. So I tend to avoid, I don't write checks to institutions. I will write checks to friends. And you have to do that fully expecting that that money all goes away. But so far, you know, my friends are fighting the good fight. And if anything, it's been an interesting opportunity for me to improve my skills as a founder, because I've been able to help them with their problems from the inside. So I'll be able to see some problems before they arise. It's made me better. So it's uh, even if every dollar I've angel invested disappears and doesn't return, the education has given me not just from an investment perspective. I don't ever expect to make money investing. I expect to make my money doing what I'm doing now. It's made me a better manager. It's made me a better founder. And speaking of friends and writing checks where all the money goes away, living in Los Angeles is probably one of the most well-developed and understood tax credit industries being the film industry. If any industry has figured it out, certainly all of our producer buddies that go film in New Zealand or Kentucky or whatever, North Carolina, I don't know where all the incentives are. They seem to have that dialed in. That's been one industry that's been a pretty good constructor of that concept. Absolutely. They invented something called a transferable tax to where when Paramount goes films in Georgia, they'll never pay Georgia state taxes where they're based. But most filming credits, you can actually sell to someone else. So Paramount, when they film in Georgia, can sell their state taxes to Home Depot that is based in Georgia. You asked an earlier question, what are trends we hope to see happen? What are great ideas? I think all research and development credits should be transferable to where if I employ someone in Wyoming, if I employ someone in Rhode Island, California, those state level taxes, I should be able to sell as a founder, get cash now. I think that would unlock an enormous amount of opportunity. Is there a marketplace that exists for that? Or how does that actually work? It's generally like private placements to where you'll have brokers who arrange this. The challenge is just not enough and liquidity in the marketplace to have a true market for this. On the filming side, there's just a handful of players that like go and film as large studios. It generally is done in a private placement. I think if you were to open this up to the startup world though, suddenly now you're talking about 40,000 different startups. You could have a really interesting R&D. There's $400 billion a year spent on R&D in the United States. What you can do to unlock that for startups, small businesses, small labs would be extraordinary. There's another billion dollar idea. By the end of this podcast, we're going to have like five different unicorns for our listeners to pursue things that you guys might not be. I was going to ask, and it was a curious question. I know you guys have a limited sample set so far. Out of all the inbounds you guys get, what broad percentage of companies do you think end up having a pursuable amount that's worthwhile? And worthwhile to everyone means something different, but maybe more than, say, five grand. Is it a majority, a minority? Don't know yet. So I can actually give you real numbers. 
by the time people are hearing this, these numbers will be slightly out of date, but we've had 420 people sign up to the platform so far. And of that 70% have been revenue generating for us, which means we've been able to identify and claim a credit for them. Wow. That's astonishing. That's been great. The other 30% we haven't been able to get anything for, we think we will as they start to rehire. One of the strange times about when we launched is everyone needs money, but no one is hiring or very few people are hiring. And that's where the majority of credits and incentives come in. Work opportunity tax credit, local state credits. We want to build the infrastructure for this right now. And again, a year, year and a half when everyone starts rehiring like crazy, that's when we expect the hiring credits to be shoot to the top of what generates revenue for us and what creates value for our, our companies. Well, look, we're both hiring and you're going to get an inbound from Cambria Investment Management this week. So tell your product leads that you're going to be running a case study for an investment company based out of LA. Doug, this has been a lot of fun. Where do people go? If you're a small business founder, CEO, you want to sign up, even if you're a big business founder and CEO, what's the best place to get started? Go to mainstreet.us and sign up. It'll take you three minutes. By the time people are listening to this, there'll likely be a new version of the sign up. They'll make things even easier. And hopefully for the small business startup founder, we'll be able to, again, advance you credit today. So you sign up, turns out you're generating credits in July through your normal business activity. We'll send you a check in August or September. So we really, really want to help you. Mainstreet.us, hopefully save you some money, save you significant money. Awesome. Doug, this has been so much fun. Really excited to watch y'all's journey. I think you're doing some pretty amazing work. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, truly my pleasure. Thank you so much. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>